Yes, as Josh said, our reading is Psalm 123. If you wish to follow it, you'll find it on page 623 of the Pew Bibles. I expect it will be up on the screen in a moment as well. It's on page 3 of our survey sheet. Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogance of contempt from the proud. Thank you very much, David, for reading that psalm for us. Today's psalm is a wonderful gospel psalm. The gospel is written across the whole of the Bible, both New and Old Testament. Now, there are particular moments as we read the Bible, though, that the gospel shines very clearly through. I think Psalm 123 is a moment like that. This is a psalm that encourages us to trust in God, to save. And that is the heart, the core message of the gospel. That message to trust in God to save is there in our psalm today. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. We're continuing in our Psalms of Ascent series, Psalms 120, 134, during the summer. And we are following the pilgrims as they go up to the festival in Jerusalem. We start in Psalm 120, leaving the tents of Kedar and desiring the righteousness of God by contrast. Continuing through Psalm 121 as the pilgrims journeyed through the dangerous bandit-filled hills uh, surrounding the route to Jerusalem. 122 we looked at last week as the pilgrims meditated on those gates of Jerusalem that their feet were about to be standing in and wondered at the glory of the Lord in the temple in the city they were going to worship in. And now their thoughts turn from that city and the temple to God himself who dwells there and the deliverance, the mercy that he offers. This psalm is uh, perhaps well numbered in our Bibles, 123. Uh, the one, two, three, along with the ABC, is one of the first things that children, all of us as children, learnt at school. Uh, our basic numbers and uh, letters, our numerology and our alphabets. Well, we're not doing fundamental arithmetic today, not doing fundamental alphabets. We're doing fundamental spirituality, uh, the need to simply fall on God's mercy, that fundamental action of the believer. This is how the believer has related to God, both before and after Jesus, falling on God's mercy. This psalm teaches us and reminds us uh, about who God is, that he is the Lord, about who we are, that we are those in danger, at risk, who are being subjugated to ridicule by the proud. And thirdly, the action that we therefore need to take to fall on God's mercy for deliverance out of the slippery situation we find ourselves in in this world. Firstly, who God is in those first couple of verses. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. 
as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, for he shows us his mercy. This is hierarchical language in today's psalm. In verse 1, our eyes are lifted up to God. He is the one who is enthroned, not merely seated in heaven. And he is like a master, like a mistress to us. This sort of hierarchical language can be grating in Western society, which is so used to individualism and egalitarianism. We have an inbuilt societal resistance to hierarchy and to hierarchical structures. Uh, We may be a little bit unusual here in the UK amongst Western nations and still retaining some vestiges of our ancient feudal medieval hierarchical past, little bits of aristocracy and monarchy, although those also have been very watered down uh, in recent centuries and decades. We only have 92 hereditary peers left in the House of Lords, uh, many country seats of the aristocracy are now simply national trust properties to enjoy our summer holidays in or have been demolished entirely. Uh, Big estates have been broken up by death duties and inheritance tax. And as for the monarchy, well, there are so many members of the royal family now who have abandoned their titles, just working royals really using their royal titles. And the next coronation, we've been told, will be a very watered-down affair compared to the three-hour marathon uh, in 1953. There was debate over the merits or demerits of those societal changes. Uh, Many positives, of course, in a more egalitarian, equal society, uh, and also a few concerns. We're not going to debate those this morning, you'll be glad to know, we're not going to delve into them. Just to note uh, that this attitude in society, in politics, can seep across into our theology and our thinking about God. We are at risk always of applying the spirit of the age to our religion. And the spirit of the age that we live in, we need to be conscious of, is one of intense individualism and a certain egalitarianism. Now, there are many biblical characterizations of God uh, across a spectrum. He is described as Lord and King, the one who is uh, a master and is enthroned, like in this Psalm 123. Also described as a father. Uh, We've already said the Lord's Prayer in this service, uh, addressed God as our Father and equally described as a mother in some places, like Luke 13, where Jesus is the the mother hen who wishes to gather Jerusalem under his wings, but they would not. God is a friend to us. He was the friend of Abraham, says James chapter 2. And he's a brother through Jesus, uh, one who is the first brother amongst a family, and a helper through the spirits, the one who helps us and comes alongside us in our faith. Now, the spirit of the age would have us emphasize the latter part of that list, the more egalitarian uh, terms like brother and helper and uh, friend. But the Christian must retain uh, the full spectrum, the full biblical spectrum of those descriptors. We must hold faithfully on to all the ways in which God is described, including those more hierarchical descriptions of God as Lord and King in order to have a full picture of who it is that we worship as our God. It may sound an obvious thing, but God is greater than us, and we mustn't lose track of that. Our culture is also 
uh, very preoccupied, especially in the last few years, with the questions of power. All relationships are analysed now by certain uh, parts of academia, particularly sociology, for their power relationships. Uh, Any relationship where there is a power imbalance is critically assessed and considered and is often considered morally ambiguous at best or even evil at worst just because there is the mere presence of a power imbalance. And that natural societal suspicion of power can cross over into our faith. The idea of a powerful God who is authoritative and acts like a master towards servants or to slaves even in the language of this translation can raise our suspicions. But while it's true for us that power does corrupt us as sinful human beings, it's not true that absolute power that God does hold absolutely corrupts him, as that famous aphorism goes. By contrast, God holds absolute power with absolute righteousness and goodness and kindness. So when we read in that verse 2 that the believer is characterised as a slave looking to the hand of his master or a female slave to the hand of her mistress, we don't need to worry about abusive relationships there. We don't have a Lord who is going to dismiss his servants in an unkind way or treat them in an unfair way or give them tasks which they're unable to do. We have a Lord who has achieved a right lordship. One won not by strength of arms on the battlefield, or by inheritance simply from a father or an uncle, or by intrigues in the corridors of Westminster, or simply by having superior abilities in some field of human endeavour. No, God has won his lordship, his mastership, his kingship, simply by his nature, who he is. He is God. And the New Testament's usage of lordship, of course, continues. Uh, It's given more fully in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is known to us in many ways as saviour, as teacher, as sacrifice, as king, as high priest, as brother. But it's significant that the most fundamental, the most simple explanation of who Jesus is, is Jesus is Lord. That's the fundamental and shortest confession of faith that we find in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we can't say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit of God. And nobody with the Spirit of God cannot say Jesus is Lord. And likewise, Romans chapter 10, the Spirit is nearest, it's in our heart, it's in our mouths. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, then we have peace with God. That's the fundamental building block of faith, the fundamental confession of the New Testament church age, that Jesus is Lord. If we ever are wondering what the most basic definition of the gospel is, if you want a gospel in three words, there it is. Jesus is Lord. You don't need to worry too much about long formulations of the gospel if we have that in our pockets. It's obviously wonderful. We do have a full gospel, and the whole Bible gives the full gospel message, which we can give various formulations to. But if we're ever thinking, how do I give a simple gospel to somebody? Well, the simplest one we can give is that Jesus is Lord. Proclaim Christ's 
lordship. And there are many implications of the lordship of God, the lordship uh, revealed in Christ. One of the key ones, of course, is how we treat his word, how we treat the word of our master and lord. He is not present with us in person. He has ascended uh, back into the heavens. He has promised to return again, but he's not with us for now. And he's left us with his spirit and his word. And how we read his word uh, in the spirit depends on how we think of him as our Lord. Yes, the Bible is in some ways an operating manual insofar as God is creator. In some ways it's a history book insofar as God is sustainer who sees us through the ages. In some ways a love letter insofar as God is a rescuer who has entered into a relationship with his people. But insofar as God is Lord, it's also a set of commandments, authoritative commandments from a master to his servants or even to his slaves. Do we look up to the Lord who gives those commandments or do we simply look sideways at him as an equal or even down at him as if he's somehow morally unacceptable as much of the world might do? Well, there's only one viable option if we know that Jesus is Lord and that's to respect and to honour and to follow his authoritative word. But this psalm goes on. It doesn't just talk about who God is, uh, just the fact that he is Lord, but it goes on to outline something about our situation as well, that we are in trouble. Verses three and four, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Contempt, ridicule, contempt, It sounds like a pretty sticky situation that the writer of this psalm is in, that the pilgrims to Jerusalem feel themselves in. There are three parties in this psalm. Those first two in the first two verses uh, were fairly happy enough, the master and his servants. But now the third party comes in, the arrogant proud. And this is evidently where the problems arise. The pilgrims are suffering at the hands of the arrogant proud, suffering contempt and ridicule. The proud are comfortable and at ease. They're convinced of their own rights living. They are holding high positions in society. They're well-fed, they're well-clothed, they're well-quartered. They're looking down on this earnest pilgrim, wending his way up through the hills to Jerusalem. What a vain endeavour that pilgrim is engaging in. What a pointless, pious little exercise. Why bother going to Jerusalem when you can just kick back at home and avoid the heat of the midday sun? Arrogant and proud. Uh, In this uh, original setting, that could be the nations around Jerusalem who are looking on at the efforts of the people of God to go up and worship in the temple. And it could also be the irreligious the backsliders within the nation itself who are looking upon other fellow Jews and fellow Hebrews as slightly too serious for their own good. And likewise for Christians today, the arrogant proud may be found both outside the church, looking on at the belief and faith and patience of God's people, but also among those who do profess belief in Christ and yet really aren't living it themselves who view Christians who strive 
for godliness and for the growth of the kingdom and for the new creation as rather too serious. And this attitude of arrogant pride leads to misery for the pilgrim then into Jerusalem and for the Christian pilgrim now as we strive to our heavenly home. It gives challenges to our faith day by day as we encounter that attitude under the surface, depriving us of support and making us feel like every day can be a struggle in faith, a battle. It was 15 years ago now that the novelist Suzanne Collins wrote her series of books, The Hunger Games, which obviously became a huge hit and won many prizes uh, in various categories. It's a dystopian series of novels about a a warped post-apocalyptic future with a capital city and 12 districts around it where the capital feeds on the districts around it. The capital has a monopoly of wealth and power and in that city reside people who are petty and shallow and corrupt, who live lives of glamour and revelry and simply feast on the fruits of the hard work of the 12 districts around them. And that attitude of contempt that this capital has for the districts is expressed most of all in the eponymous games of the series of books where the capital gets representatives of all the districts to come and take part in a sort of gladiatorial death match amongst themselves simply for the entertainment, the pleasure of those who live in the capital. And Suzanne Collins does a good job in that series of books of capturing the idea of arrogant pride in the capital, uh, an attitude that the reader is very much encouraged to dislike, take a distaste towards, and to cheer on the districts as they rise up against the capital. The sad reality is that that attitude of arrogant pride uh, isn't something simply that resides uh, in a fantastical dystopian capital city, but actually is in all of our hearts in some way, and particularly is a challenge for those who look on the earnestness of the people of God. We don't always find, of course, anything like the cruelty and the sadism that we read about in an extreme novelised form of arrogant pride. But just beneath the surface, we can often detect that sort of attitude. The effects of scorn and contempt towards God's people vary, of course, across the world. In many places, it'll be much more severe than we experience here. And that gets expressed, of course, in persecution and all sorts of other suffering experienced by the church. But we know that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not just something for Christians over there, Christians Uh, in those difficult situations, those top five persecuted countries, anywhere where Christians are striving to follow God fully, who are trying to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, there will be some form of persecution arising from this attitude that we read in Psalm 123 of arrogance and contempt. That might be in the form of mocking a Bible verse written on the banner outside church, or laughing at a course that we run, an evangelistic course in the village, or mocking a doctrine that we hold, a belief about the resurrection, for example, of the dead in the future. That attitude isn't constant uh, when we encounter it, 
But it's distinctive and it's recurring. We know it's there. Scorn and contempt. I've encountered it in my own life in various situations. Certainly I know that whenever I have in the past given out flyers in public and the streets for a Christian event happening, that I have encountered a huge amount of scorn and contempt. Often people not even realising it's a Christian event going on just because it's something outside of their normal, ordinary, comfortable course of life that they're being invited to take part in and take interest in. I used to work in a fairly image-conscious and highly strong profession, and certainly wherever Christianity reared its head or the gospel was hinted at in conversation, there was pride and contempt and scorn uh, to be seen there. And certainly I know that when I went off to do ordination training for the Church of England ministry, that's, I encountered this attitude of scorn and contempt uh, from a number of people, particularly I noticed middle-aged, middle-class, non-Christian folk who didn't really understand what it was all about, couldn't think why somebody would be following that particular line in life and giving up a perfectly good career. Scorn and contempt. Wonderfully, we have an action plan in this psalm. It's not just a setting out who God is, what sort of situation the believer is in, but it's also giving us an uh, attitude to follow. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. God is Lord. We are in trouble. But we can cry to God in that trouble for his mercy. He can save and he will save. This attitude is the essential attitude of the gospel, uh, the essential attitude of the believer in all ages. That recognition of God as Lord and ourselves as helpless in the face of trouble in the world. That's not just a once-for-all action, not just an attitude that we adopt once in life. Oh yes, when I was 12, I called on God for mercy, I prayed that prayer, and now I'm okay with him. But it's a continual, day-by-day attitude towards God. That's the essence of perseverant faith that keeps going every day seeking God's mercy and resting on that. There's a wonderful picture of God's mercy in the parable of the prodigal son when he realises the helplessness he's in, the scorn and contempt of those who pass by the pigsty where he's looking after the swine and then not interested in giving him any help at all. And he realises the situation he's in and the fact he has to fall on his father's mercy. And he goes and falls on that mercy and wonderfully gets embraced by his father. Well, likewise, God continues to embrace us as we continue to fall on his mercy. And in this life, we're always going to need to do that because this attitude of the contemptuous proud will always be there and always be assailing us. But we can always turn to the Lord for help. And let's do that now and give thanks for God's mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the simplicity and the consistency of the gospel. We delight that Jesus is Lord. We acknowledge before you our predicament, our helplessness, and we fall upon you once again for your abundant mercy, praising you for it. Keep us, we pray, in that mercy all our days. For Jesus' sake. Amen.